Third time's a charm. Three is a magic number. Hello, and welcome to Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 33, Back to the Future Part 3, and I'm your host, Michael McFly. Welcome to the official jump-off of year three. Rumor has it that in exactly one year from now, I will be releasing my very last episode of Third Time's a Charm. But until then, I have a lot of big franchise movies to talk about, and this episode is no exception, because third-timers, we are finally doing Back to the Future. And who better to join me than my official Back to the Future consultant, Dan of the Dead Cologne. That's right, I usually call in Dan of the Dead Cologne as my horror consultant, but today he switched titles to talk about one of, if not his very favorite, franchise ever. So, without any further ado, grab your hoverboard, your six-shooter, and the train schedule, because we gotta double back again. Welcome back, Dan Cologne. Welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Big, big episode. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me back, Mike. I have a feeling this episode is going to get heavy. There's that word again, heavy. Is, is there something <laughs> wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull in the future? Ordinarily, I like to call you in when um, we're doing horror films from time to time as my horror consultant. But I also know that you love, love, love the Back to the Future series. So I had to call you in for that, among other reasons, which we'll get into. But uh, welcome to the Back to the Future 3 episode. Everybody, welcome Dan Cologne. Thank you, thank you. So this this franchise is very uh, near and dear to my heart. The first Back to the Future is my all-time favorite movie. It's not even close. This movie I have been watching since I was a kid. I have very fond memories of going to Universal Studios as a kid and riding the ride when they still had it there. That ride was incredible. And it's going to be very difficult for me to be objective about the other two films in this trilogy for that exact reason. I'll try to be as objective as I can. You know, I do think that the first one is far and away the best. And then I think the other two are much weaker films. But for someone like me who just enjoys spending time with Doc and Marty, I, I find myself forgiving a lot of the uh, the flaws that they have. So Back to the Future 3 is such an oddball movie, but I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm with you, man. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, this is such a great franchise. Um, you know, I, I've got some problems with, with the second one, which, uh, <laughs> you know, we could talk about. But like, yeah, you know, I, I saw all three in theaters growing up as a kid. And I remember having to wait like those five or six years or whatever between parts one and two were like an eternity. I don't think I was ever going to be fully satisfied no matter what they fed me that at that point but I was actually quite excited for part three. This movie introduced me to westerns believe it or not. Interesting. Yeah like I had never really watched a western before Back to the Future 3 never had any interest until seeing this movie actually and now I'm, I'm actually a big fan like as an adult I'm a big fan of westerns and stuff but I also agree with you man I think it's the characters that endured like Doc and Marty I'm sure they're not the first 
old guy, young kid to team up in film history, but they sure are like the most memorable, you know, they feel like, like Bill and Ted or Wayne and Garth or like Abbott and Costello, like there's just such great chemistry with these characters. So before we get into part three, you and I met in college and, you know, I think we kind of, among other films, bonded over Back to the Future. And there was like a, a point of contention amongst me, you and some other friends of ours about i guess the uh quality of the second movie right yeah i don't know i don't know the genesis of this but i don't know if it went back as far as college but i can i will say i've been waiting the better part of the past decade to learn exactly what you hate so much about back to the future too like that's half the reason i i decided to do this episode with you i like you just watched all three and and i will say like i have i have less problems with back to the future 2 now that i'm more mature about it and mm-hmm. stuff, but I still have the same issue, and it's still there, and it's a glaring issue for me. I, I call it the letter paradox, basically. And I, and before I get into this, I, I will say like my favorite stuff about Back to the Future Two is when they go back into the first movie. Like I find that extremely clever. I like how they did that in Avengers Endgame as well. Uh, it's all the stuff sort of before that with the future and the alternate 85 that that, that really I, I'm just not into but my main issue has been this and I hope I hope it doesn't fall too flat having waited so long but basically it goes like this in the original timeline back to the future one at the end before he is sent back to 1985 Marty writes a letter to Doc informing him of future events that the Libyans are going to shoot him and he needs to wear a bulletproof vest in order to save his life Doc then takes the letter rips it up and throws it away but then at the end of the movie when marty gets back to 1985 we find out that doc took those pieces taped them back together and read the letter and then you know took precautions and wore a bulletproof vest then we have all the events of part two and at the end of part two doc is sent into 1885 which is where our movie will begin but he is basically stranded in time and marty is stuck in 1955 so then marty is visited by western union so like the western union guys come up and they hand marty a letter and it's a really long letter from doc and he's stuck in 1885 and he's okay and marty sort of like skips to the end and he goes you know doc's okay he's in the past but but he's alive and then they're like well you know can i help you and he's like only one man can help me flash to the events of the end of the first movie where we see doc send marty prime back to the future (laughs) (laughs) doc goes running down the street in celebration and around the corner comes marty too cool marty in his leather jacket and stuff and he goes doc doc i need your help i'm back from the future and doc passes out our movie begins back to the future three marty has taken doc back to the mansion they've fallen asleep on the couch and then the events of part three unfold he sends marty back to the old west after digging up the time machine yada 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 so the thing that always bothered me is that because marty goes back to get doc's help after sending him into the future when does doc ever have time to put the letter back together that it was written to him that he first tore up saying that he was going to get <laughs> shot by the libyans this is what it was all about this is the major plot hole that i just cannot stand every time i watch this series now because they've tripped over their own feet and they're not paying attention to what they wrote you know so like that is the genesis basically that is like that is it for me okay, okay. that that oof. Okay, that that seems um, like a little bit of a molehill to be uh, building your mansion of hate on top of. Well, it was sort of it was sort of the <laughs> final brick in the in the mansion. I'll just put it that way. Sure, I mean I'm a little. Bit, I have to admit I'm a little bit underwhelmed knowing what 
I know now. But to answer the to or to address that issue, I'm not saying that it is the most likely scenario, but I will say that it explains that conundrum well enough for me. What I think is is plausible is that because Marty 2 shows up right on the tail of Marty Prime going back to the future, Doc has not had time to process that letter. We can assume he maybe collected the pieces. We don't see it happen, but he has not had time to address that ripped up letter because he is now focused on getting Marty 2 back to 1885 to go get, you know, future Doc. And then after that whole thing happens, then he has time to readdress the letter, you know, tape it back up, read it. I'm not saying that it is the most plausible, and I'm not saying they didn't. They certainly may have overlooked that when writing these sequels, but I think that it is plausible that that's what happened. And that, to me, is good enough to explain the sort of inconsistencies in the timeline. I'm I'm willing, it's been this long and I'm willing to let it go. Right. You know, because I figured, because I remember the first time watching this as a little kid going like, when did he have time to like collect all those pieces of paper and like paste the tape? Even as a little kid, I was kind of like, wait a second, like there was a storm and, you know, unless I missed him putting them in his jacket pocket. I mean, that that is quite possible. After he sends Marty back to the old west like he's doing his laundry and he's like what are these pieces of paper here and he's like taping them back together and it's just i think he just rips them up and they fall to the ground and the next time we see him he sees marty too and collapses he faints on the ground now did marty think to collect those pieces probably not i think that at this point we're getting to we're overanalyzing a movie that is not meant to be analyzed on this level but i mean like to put it in sort of doctor who terms you know like the, the like the timey wimey nonsense it's i mean it's slippery you know, this movie does not hold up under scientific scrutiny. That is for sure. <laughs> well, what's funny is I think out of um, all of them, I think three is probably the most sort of sound and solid in its time travel or like in its agenda or I'd say in its mission even the first one has like that disappearing photograph which is cool but it's like kind of weird and everything and for me the second one like I mean just as a kid I just was so disappointed that like we spent such little time in the future that it was basically a, a retread of every I mean they all sort of are remakes of one another but like I was not prepared for that sort of staleness as a little kid I just felt like kind of conned I guess and I never really got over that as an adult but I do like the concept of alternate 1985 and I love like I said going back into the the first movie I think they could have done a whole movie of that somehow that's why for me when I sort of dwelled on them as like a college student and tried to like overanalyze them and I was you know thought I was like smart and shit about analyzing movies and stuff you know but this is just like a popcorn film and like you're not supposed to think that hard about those types of things and just have fun yeah I feel like in that situation you were almost the grown man picking on the eight-year-old boy like Mm -hmm. if this is where you're going to set your sights as the lofty film student you know, maybe there are better movies that you could be picking apart and trashing. Because, you know, like like I said, in terms of, of, of the science of time travel, you know, these movies just don't hold up at all. These are very clearly more summer popcorn type movies. But yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying. So let's 
turn our attention to part three. Yeah. So Back to the Future 3, it's very interesting because this was also the first time I heard of films being shot back to back. Part two and three, they were basically, you know, it was all shot as one giant film. And I think they came out, what, like about a half a year apart, maybe a little over that, I think. Something like that. Yeah. And so there's actually kind of a nice consistency. Like, I really like how two ends and three begins, like with Marty getting stranded again and needing to uh, have Doc send him back. Like, I don't know if you've ever kind of pondered this, but what a crazy month for a high school kid, Marty McFly, that he's gone through. Right. You know, I figured he's stranded in 1955 for a week. He goes to the future and runs around alternate 1985 in the past for, you know, a couple days, and then he's stranded in the Old West for like a week. Yeah, we can assume he's been bouncing around for about maybe three weeks, uh, at least. Which would make him that much older than everybody else when he gets back to his normal timeline, <laughs> which is kind of cool to think about. He's just, like, aged differently. Right. But I really like this stuff, you know, when they open up and they have to, you know, they're reading the actual letter now, and it explains how, like, Doc is trapped in the past, and now he is a uh, blacksmith, which I thought was really cool, and then he gave him instructions about, like, where to find the time machine and everything. And and this, this stuff's really great, I think, when they go excavate the time machine. Yes. They're talking about, like, Jules Verne and Journey to the Center of the Earth, and I'm really getting like a nice, fun sort of sci-fi vibe from all this because we're in the 50s, and it feels almost like a 50s science fiction adventure kind of film. Yes, 100%. So do you have like any particular highlights before we get back to the past when um, like Marty and Doc are fixing up the time machine? And Yeah, so I was going to jump in a few seconds ago. I think when you mentioned that this was one of the first times that you were aware of where two movies were shot back to back, this is the first that I am aware of. I'm sure it's not the first ever, but it's the first time as far as I can see where two movies had been shot so close together, almost as one movie. And I think that because of that, despite the flaws that are that exist in part two, it's made up for with part three because of that. The continuity makes a lot more sense. If only they had conceived of this story, this three-part story, as a three-part story, then some of the, um, the wonkiness in the continuity might not seem so apparent, because two and three definitely feel like like two parts of one story. And I think that's definitely to the benefit of this trilogy. One of the things I love about this movie as we get to them getting Marty set to go back to 1885, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on was the DeLorean. Now, this DeLorean is one of the most iconic movie cars of all time. You know, I put it up there with the Ghostbusters, the Ecto-1, the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger. 66 Batmobile, I would put there. Yeah. 100%. And I mean, the first one is so iconic. But as I was rewatching this movie, it hit me that my favorite version of this car is the version that exists in part three. Really? I mean, I love all of them. They all have their own sort of things about them that are cool. I mean, obviously in part two, they, it flies and we've got Mr. Fusion, which can convert garbage into the energy it needs to, to activate the flux capacitor. But I love when they dig out this car from the tunnel, they excavate it from the cemetery and, and they have to like sort of put it back together. It is the jank version of this car <laughs> and I love that it's got a little bit of eight a little bit of the 80s in it it's got that still has the mr fusion attached then it's got the the mechanisms that are like strapped to the hood these like 1950s like tube bulbs and all kinds of things the the iridescent bulbs and the you know the white wall tires it looks like a yard sale time machine <laughs> I love that it's a character in and of itself right like it can't talk like kit 
necessarily but like it goes through an evolution you know it goes to the future and it gets this upgrade and then it gets trapped in the past and has to be rebuilt but they don't have the parts yet so like a little tiny microchip is what i think is on the hood of the car now right is like that device is like the size of the microchip that they had to build with the stuff they had available in the 50s yeah i love it too i I love its whole sort of arc as a character yeah i think when you when you think of it as a character it is the character in this trilogy that really experiences the most change in that you know marty is always going he's always kind of the kid from the 1980s and then doc depending on which version of him you're seeing is either the product of the 50s or the 80s And and they're wearing clothing that represents that time period unless they're in disguise in which case they look strange right they don't look at home in, in those clothes they stick out yeah whereas this car it's just like it's it's literally evolving because uh, like out of necessity the only way to keep it going is to swap out parts add new parts this thing is an entirely different vehicle from where it started in the first one and i just love it i think like it looks more than the first one it looks like something somebody built in their garage and you know invented with spare parts they had laying around the house well yeah it also reminded me of like the george pal time machine in the old 50s movie yes you know with the bulbs and all that like you were saying coming out and like the big devices hanging out and it's the only character that dies i believe in the entire series yeah. or the only one you know that we yeah. see. george mcfly is dead at one point but we don't actually see that murder gets reversed <laughs> Yeah, but the the DeLorean is the only character that dies and stays dead. And yeah, and it is actually pretty sad when that moment happens. You know, it always hits me. I forget about it. But when it gets run over by the train, you know, there's like that moment of sadness, I feel like, oh, man, this car that I love so much is gone. It hit me, too. You know, it it marked at least until the train shows up, it marks like it's like a definitive period. You're like, oh, I guess it really is done. Like it's right. over <laughs> and then right. the little extra coda comes, but we're not right. there yet. So one thing I really love that they set up about this movie, and I sort of touched on it a bit earlier, is uh, I feel like out of all three of them, maybe the first one, but the first one is definitely funnier than this one, uh, even though this one has its moments. There's some real stakes involved, I feel like, in this Back to the Future for a Back to the Future movie. Yes, I, I agree with that totally. Like Doc is dead, mm-hmm. you know, like we have to go save Doc's life and that's speaking of dead people right like they it's like they don't even want a dead person to stay dead in this series we have to go back and and resurrect him I feel like that's a mission right like that's an appropriate mission for Marty to divert and even Doc is like yes you have to go back and and make sure I do not die and not only that but if Marty fails and they aren't able to get back to 1985 the chances of them being stuck in 1885 forever are very very high considering the level of technology in 1885 they're lucky to have what they have when they have it but they only have the one shot and i think that's insane stakes that's crazy so it's hilarious that like doc forgets to bring extra plutonium in the first movie and in this one it didn't even occur to me that he should have like an extra can of gas because as soon as he gets to the past and he ruptures the fuel line it doesn't even occur to marty that gasoline hasn't been invented yet and it's like such a small thing but it's such a huge deal you know right and it's just like one one thing after another like he breaks through time and there's the 
Native Americans charging at him. And then he mm-hmm. finds the cave and the bear. It's like this. He gets to town and he's hanged. Like, right. you know, it's fucking dangerous. And they make sure you know it back then. Yeah, totally. But I think that's like getting me going. Like, it's like a real Western when he shows up in the past. It is. Because I know you said that this was sort of your first Western or one of the movies that sort of was at the beginning of your interest in Westerns. And as I rewatched this and, you know, I've, I haven't watched Back to the Future 3 in, I'll be honest, I haven't watched it in a while. I don't watch this movie annually, but I've seen it a lot over the course of my life. But in the time between the last last time I saw it and the time I saw it this week, you know, I've watched more Westerns and it became more clear to me how much they were drawing from some of those Westerns. Even my dad was watching, he was just watching Mad Dog Tannen's body language during the shootout towards the end of the movie. He, he pointed that out as, uh, as being a reference to something, which I forget what he said it was. But this movie does feel like a Western at times in terms of how they shot it, the low angle, the wide shots. Some of the editing definitely is, is reminiscent of those old Westerns. I mean, as silly as Marty using the name Clint Eastwood and, and wearing this goofy cowboy outfit, it does really channel some of the, the film techniques of, of those old Westerns, which I really enjoyed. So that's really what shocked me watching it again, because, yeah, I don't I don't watch this one often. I don't, I mean, as much as I love the first one, I don't, I kind of like to savor it. I don't really watch it that often either. But coming back this time, I was blown away. I was like, I can't believe they actually went out there and shot like where John Ford used to shoot you know, yeah. his old westerns. And they're using those locations. They have the vistas. Yep. It looks amazing. And I think also they use a very different... I mean, at least I got to go back and watch... I didn't pay as close attention to the first two, but I always recognized it watching this movie. There's a lot of long takes in this film, and there's a lot of really great timing and choreography with things moving in the, in the foreground, in the background, and like, yeah. you know, trains punctuating the end of shots that lasted like three and a half minutes. And things just like amazing, like just filmmaking going on. And I think that Mm -hmm. really contributes to like making it feel more like a Western or more like a classic Hollywood film in general. Um, It makes some of the other stuff like a little easier to swallow, I think, like the jokey or Clint Eastwood stuff. Right. Yeah. And and we can thank Dean Cundy for that. I didn't realize until this time through and when I saw his name in the credits that he's the cinematographer on this movie. And some some people might know Dean Cundy from the work he's done with John Carpenter, who also loves Westerns. So it's starting to make sense to me why this movie looks as good as it does. And then, of course, the, you know, the amazing score at times retrofitted to be a little more country and Western at times. And, you know, the, the great... ZZ Top single Double Back I remember <laughs> Yep Never being a hit On the charts Or anything But I had The little cassette single But it charted In my heart Mike <laughs> And that's all That really matters <laughs> That's it You know it's funny Real quick I just wanted to tell you This morning You know as I was On my way to work I stopped for some coffee And I walked into A Wawa Which you know We have those In South Jersey And for some reason I heard Huey Lewis In the news On in the Wawa And it wasn't Power of Love It wasn't I want a new drug It was Back in Time, which was specifically recorded for Back to the Future. And I thought, why would this song ever be playing in public? I don't know. I'll never get an answer to that. <laughs> but I was like, I know I'm recording this episode tonight. Or how fortuitous is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fairly funny. And, and that actually brings up a point where there was like... That song was recorded for the first movie. Double Back was recorded for the third movie. They really didn't have anything for the second movie. They kind of dropped the ball there. There's a missed. I mean, I know there's like a Sammy Hagar song somewhere in the middle there when he goes to 
Biff's Pleasure Palace, but like it wasn't a sure. pushed as a chart-topping hit or anything like that. Right, yeah, no, that one didn't have one for some reason, and I wish it did, just so it had its own kind of musical identity. Because otherwise the score the score is almost a rehash of the first score. Part three is really where they, they tried to recreate that magic musically. I think it does work, it just didn't explode the way, you know, The Power of Love did. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think anybody was... Uh, I mean, I, I think ZZ Top had sort of like had its day by the time this Could movie be. came out. And it was sort of like, I remember even ACDC at the time was sort of experiencing a revival. When I was like this age, I bought an ACDC album for the first time. And I was like, hey, I might as well buy a ZZ Top too, you know, sort of feels like it's in the same vein. And uh, But I don't think they ever got big again, not off this. Right. Well, I guess we got to mention this real quick. And this is one thing I don't really love about Back to the Future 3 is that um, he runs into his ancestors in this one again, you know? Right. Um, like, I get that there's like a sort of repetitiveness to the style of these of the screenplay and of the story where certain events have to reoccur very much like star wars i feel like sure sometimes works better than others this one i think does certain things better than others but this for me is something that does not really work so well and it mostly because of the casting um like i don't mind it but like the idea that he plays his own ancestor and that the Leah Thompson plays his aunt, his other it's like weird because it's two sides of the fam I don't know there's some kind of thing wrong with that like right I, 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 I get time is cyclical in nature and that's what they're sort of trying to illustrate with those moments because he has those moments in every movie where he's he's un- unconscious he wakes up and there's Leah Thompson ready to you know take care of him after a hit on the head and there, there's really no good reason other than that to explain why leah thompson is in this movie because she's a she's a um a baines she's not a mcfly so there's no reason for her to to be here so i mean yeah it's it's not neat i can see why you and and maybe other people would be bothered by that but considering again the sort of wonky nature of time within this movie and and this the fact that this trilogy relies so much on the cast i tend to forgive it but you're right it is kind of weird it is there's no real good explanation to have Lorraine Leah Thompson show up in this. It's just because, you know, they wanted to keep the cast together. So what I think is interesting is the character of Seamus, though, the one that Marty plays. It just doesn't make sense that he's married to Leah Thompson because they're from, you know, I just assume they it would it should have been like Crispin Glover or right. something like okay. that, right? Like that's, that's how I, I feel about it. Yeah, but, but or it could have just been the character of Seamus, the farmer, and like the Leah Thompson character could just be a lady somewhere in town that he's courting. I like the character of Seamus because it helps Marty actually grow in this movie and get Mm -hmm. away from what they turned him into in the last movie, which was this hot-headed, don't call me chicken guy, Right. which I really disliked in the last movie. (laughs) It just, because it just, it just comes out of nowhere. It's not set up that Marty's like particularly a badass or or like a, you know, a mean or a bully or anything like that. And I mean, he's a tough kid he's like a rocker and stuff but i like that they have this character help marty sort of realize that that's bullshit and so like i do feel like it's a good character i just feel like this moment is like kind of wonky for me i think that's one of those moments where having made these two movies together is it's where they benefit because yeah to, to make that character choice in part two where we're just the whole thing is Marty can't back down from a challenge. You're right. It does come out of nowhere. There's really no evidence to suggest that in the first movie, but 
since they introduced it, okay, now they have to pay it off. And I think that they do pay it off well in part three. I think you're right about Seamus being a great character for that part of Marty's arc. And I think that they made that decision because in the first movie, Marty doesn't have much of a character arc. You know, his whole motivation is to get back to his normal time. And when he, and he he's the constant. Everybody else changes around him. He's the constant. And so they had to make him more complicated. And you could argue that they kind of took him in a weird direction, but they do pay it off in the third movie, so it's hard for me to really get angry about it. Yeah, no, I'm not angry. I just think it's a little lazy, you know, like, yeah, uh, that's all, because because it's not like, because Marty, you know, Marty does not back down from Biff at the diner in part one. Like, he right. punches him in the face, like, he pushes him back in the lunchroom. Like, he's, he's not going to step down, you're right, but it's not like he was taunted or anything. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the best it's the best decision, but I I can see why they made that decision. They maybe could have gone less broad with it. I think that may be part of it is that it's just such a such a broad character change. On the point of like how Marty doesn't really change in the first movie, I have this memory at the end of the first movie when he comes back. Like you say he's the constant, but I didn't know what a constant was when I'm like six years old. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I barely was able to understand that, you know, up until 10, 15 years ago. So I'm sitting in the movie theater in the credits roll and I go to my mom and I'm like, how come Marty didn't change? Like, you know, everyone in his family is different. And she turns to me and she goes, because he was always cool. And right. I was like, that's perfect. That's like the perfect explanation. Like that made so much sense to my mind at the time. But obviously, like if you experience the events, you're not going to change, right? You passed you're not still your future. In a dramatic way, right. Yeah. So like, but, but I just thought that was, you know, kind of related to what you're just talking about, you know, about the, like, you're right. He doesn't change. He doesn't really have to. He's just like sort of on this adventure. So yeah. yeah. So maybe that's why I felt a little forced in the second movie, but this retroactively fixes a lot of that stuff for me. Yes, I agree. And another thing I like too, is that they're going to do a twist on the whole race around the uh, town square kind of deal like whereas in the first two when marty runs into biff tannen like he kind of wins and humiliates biff yep. but in this one mad dog tannen's gonna like catch him and hang him and like nearly <laughs> kill him and drag him by a horse like there's a lot of reversals in this one uh and that's not like the only one there's also the whole concept of how doc is now the one who's like all like forlorn and in love and marty is the more sort of focused and rational one whereas in like the first movie marty was the one dealing with like quote-unquote girl trouble yep and doc was the one sort of centered on getting back to the future and that comes down to dialogue too i mean there's the moment in this one where marty says great scott and doc says yeah this is heavy you know like they they, they literally kind of become each other in a weird way that's right and i and i think that's great like that's a good thing to do when you know we're in a part three here and like we were talking a little bit about how these characters haven't really grown too much and even even doc like he's he's always just sort of like this manic crazy doc but here in this one we actually get to see another side of doc you know like i never would have pegged him for a romantic or anything like that but it just goes to show and i think christopher lloyd is doing an amazing job i think he's just amazing in this entire series he's just the best but i think mm -hmm. uh especially here you know this movie really gives these characters time to breathe yes and i think it's like a full maybe 10 or 15 minutes longer than the other two movies and that might account for it. And I think, again, that's that's helping everything for me, helping me to digest. Like, we're, you know, like the dialogue is character driven. The events are character driven. Like everything has like a focus in this one. Yeah. And, and this one gives me a much better sense of what 
Doc and Marty were like normally because we, we we get that they were friends in in 1985 in that first movie, but because of the time travel emergency, we don't really get to. And, and also because most the Doc we see in in the first one is mostly 1950s Doc. Oh yeah. This is the movie where we get to see what Marty and Doc were probably like just hanging out after school, you know, in the lab. <laughs> And just being friends, you right? Know what I mean? Working on amps, giant amplifiers, right? Like I'm looking at the um, at the giant ice machine. That's the amplifier, but in 1885, yeah, the 1950s doc didn't know Marty, and you know, so of course they didn't have that chemistry. But now we're seeing Marty Prime with Doc Prime in 1885 just kind of being friends and we do get a much better sense of that here that never really occurred to me i totally love it like on on just another level now you're right like this whole time yeah like we just jumped right into the adventure basically and even in the last movie you know they were trying to fix stuff and right wrongs and running around in a whole panic and everything and now they finally have time just to like shoot the shit and talk and hang out and yeah be friends and that's yeah that's great oh we we didn't really mention this, but like the the whole thing, I think is kind of clever too with the tombstone and how that kind of keeps changing throughout the movie. I mean, that, that's very a very clear wink at, at the the photo from the first one instead of Marty and his siblings. It's the tombstone, which is ever changing, which we haven't seen that before. Yeah, and I think that that works a little better than the photo in the first movie, just because it's more of a basic image you know it's not people it's like a thing so like i feel like less weirded out by it maybe i always i always even to this day i feel weird when doc first looks at the picture and his brother's head is missing in the original movie i'm like oh man this is like this is like really bizarre so this this helps it go down a little easier sure and then we get the whole sort of confrontation with mad dog tannin and doc it's really interesting how doc now has beef with a with a tannin instead of a McFly, like that's a cool little switcheroo. And one thing I, I did not love about this particular movie is that Biff's like buddies. It was posse. They're the same guys like in 1955 as they are in 2015. But they and that includes Billy Zane. For those who have never realized that that Billy Zane is one of his friends. They didn't use that same group of guys. Oh, they're also in the alternate 1985 as well. They are not the same guys in 1885. They decided to keep Leah Thompson in there, but they didn't keep Biff's buddies and just dress them in Western you know, costumes. And I would love to know why. I wasn't able to find anything about it online, but I, maybe they just didn't seem as high priority or, or these guys maybe wanted too much money. I don't know. But it's just, it's the one piece of wonky continuity that if, like, if we're just going to do that, we should have everybody come back. And these guys are different guys. It's, a, it is kind of weird considering they shot these like back to back. Like why couldn't they exactly. just like, you know, put on some cowboy hats and like i'd love to see billy zane in, in a, dressed as a cowboy i mean we even get elizabeth Shoeback for like one scene at the end of this movie you know i mean we do poor thankless elizabeth shoes role as jennifer throughout this entire series like you have no idea how hard i wanted her to be like in part three with marty running around the old west or, or at least at the end of part two somehow like get her to go back in time and have her run around and do no one knows who she is like right. send her to the dance under the sea dance that that would have been so freaking funny. Yeah, oh, that would have been awesome. What's nice about this one is we actually, I feel like we actually do get a pretty strong, good female character for Back to the Future anyway, in the uh, school teacher of Clara, Clara Clayton. Yes. 
Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen, yes. I, I love the whole idea. You know, they're so concerned with not screwing with the timeline or anything, and yet here they go just on instinct. They save this woman from her death and end up changing the future and marty's like yep. oh. i always thought that was great where marty's like oh my god yeah clayton ravine like it never occurred to me like every kid remembers how that school teacher went over the ravine 100 years ago and doc's like god great scott damn it <laughs> <laughs> What's cool about her character ultimately is that, you know, since she's on sort of borrowed time, she was fated to die, it fits that she can be sort of unstuck at the end with Doc Brown and travel through time wherever because she's like an unaccounted for person. Yeah. Like she can go time travel because she's supposed to be dead. Right. No one's looking for her. If she popped up anywhere, it wouldn't really matter. <laughs> and, and the ravine is no longer named for her. So yeah, she's there's almost no record that she would be around. Makes sense. I, I figured Clint Eastwood would still be named Clint Eastwood, but probably named after the, you know, guy who, like, tried to rob a train and risked his life <laughs> robbing a train and went into the ravine, right? Well, that, that's the implication, right? When the guy in the saloon says, you know, if you walk away, you know, Clint Eastwood will be known as the biggest yellow belly in the West, you know? So if only for the actor's sake, Marty had to go through with his showdown with Mad Dog Tan. Maybe that is where you got the idea for putting it in the uh, bulletproof vest in the oh, movie. Oh, he sure does because in, in the second one, Biff is watching that movie. It's great how, not just with this time travel movie, but one of my favorite, or maybe my favorite thing about time travel is sort of like the chicken and the egg thing. It's sure. like, what what come first? And not in like a Dr. Manhattan kind of, they both came at the same <laughs> time way, but like truly where like, did Marty invent rock and roll or was he always destined to go back? Like those kinds of things I find like always just worth revisiting these time travel sort of movies for, or always seeing the next one to see what kind of paradox they're, they're coming up with. Right. Yeah, and I think this movie has as much fun with that idea as it's capable of, for lack of a better word, without getting too heavy. It deals with it in an easy-to-understand way. It's so easy, in fact, that, I mean, they, they literally rip this from the page and put it into Avengers Endgame. You know, like, they, they call it out. Like, you mean, like, in Back to the Future. You know, I love that in that movie, a character would have seen these movies and thought that's how time travel works. And to some degree, maybe maybe it would, but, you know, clearly they're playing fast and loose with, with physics here. It's kind of weird about what Marvel ended up declaring is that, oh, all those different points in time created sort of these divergent timelines or whatever, and now there's, like, this whole multiverse out there or something. Right. And, like, now I just want to picture, like, sort of a Rick and Morty situation where there's, like, hundreds of Doc and Martys running around trying to sort of, like, fix the timeline or, like... That definitely exists on Rick and Morty. There's like a hundred thousand Ricks. <laughs> Which I I don't know if you've ever seen the like the the sort of pilot episode of Rick and Morty, but it it was called Doc and Marty, and uh, they looked much more like Doc and Marty did, and they sort of had to just like adjust a few things and and change it. I think for licensing rights. Oh, that's funny. I've never seen that. Yeah, you could. It's on YouTube. It's it's very. Uh, it's very crude. I'll just put it that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Animation and subject matter. Right. But this movie, it's kind of weird that it is two hours long because I feel like it's very efficient in what it does. Like after Marty gets there, it's like, okay, here's the plan to get you back to the future. We're going to push you on a train and then they meet Clara and it's like okay I'm in love with Clara and then they go to the dance and it's like alright here's where he's gonna get shot and Marty changes everything and then it's like alright well now there's gonna be this showdown in two days between Biff and Marty well that's the day we're going back to the future I like how sort of economic it is which is why it's a little weird 
why it feels a little drawn out at the same time? Well, I think it feels a little bit drawn out because of Doc and Clara. The movie slows down to let that relationship develop. And I think that, I mean, it has to, because we've never seen Doc in love with anyone. Even he laughs at the idea that he could be diverted from his path because he has fallen magically in love with this woman he's never met. So the movie has to slow down to give that time to breathe. But I think that might only be problematic with repeat viewings, because if you've seen this movie enough times, you know where it's going. But if you're watching this movie for the first time, this is something you've never seen before. You've never seen Doc in this predicament. So I, I feel like it's a problem that really you're just going to have if you've seen this a lot. I, I really enjoy the time they spend with, with Doc and Clara because it's a different relationship from Marty and Jennifer, who, to be honest, we never really get to see get to be a couple until the end of this movie. I was just about to say that. You're right. This is sort of the only time in the entire series where the movie does slow down and we do get to sort of develop any kind of romantic relationship or new close bond. The first movie analog to this storyline Line is or yeah is uh, Marty and his mom, which is not meant to be a romantic plot line. It's it's played for jokes. Whereas this, they're they're legitimately trying to build a romantic interest between two characters. So I do think the movie slows down, but I also can't see it working without doing that. And to be honest, I love what they talk about and how they what they bond over is like you know since she's a school teacher and he's a like she has a love of science and of reading and and he's a scientist. So they they've both read Jules. Vern, you know, they have like this great mm -hmm. common ground with that particular writer and, and everything just sort of springs from there. And she talks about, you know, being quarantined as a kid and, and getting a telescope and looking up at the stars. And I mean, it's, it's a great, like whimsical little romantic moment between them. It's the, yeah, it's the only story like this we see in all three movies. So yeah, it slows it down, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually really happy to, to let it, to slow the movie down just to, to let this stuff breathe because it's so good. Oh yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd much rather have this stuff than, than the uh, early stuff on Seamus' farm. I, I'd rather have him just sort of bump into Seamus like, you know, in town somewhere or like he comes to docks to get his horseshoe yeah, or something. Yeah, I can agree with that. Maybe the biggest sort of set piece in this whole movie, uh, aside from the great train sequence, is the town fair for the clock tower like uh grand opening thing mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is doc has something some kind of line about how it's just fitting how there's they're here for this moment and it is such a beautiful moment i'm so glad they fit this in here somehow because the clock tower is another character right like it's another inanimate character yep. in the movie or it's such a central you know focal point in that first film and it's so important to like their journey and their relationship and stuff so like that was really cool to see them there get their picture taken together uh, in front of the clock. Yeah, the, I feel the, the clock tower almost has the reverse story arc to the to the DeLorean. We see it dead, and then now we're seeing it being built, being born. I don't know how intentional that was. I mean, it must have been on somebody's mind. But yeah, like I think that's awesome that the clock tower and the time machine have the exact opposite story arcs. That's so funny. That's just got to be like some kind of kismet or something, even if they weren't thinking about it. Because it's just <laughs> like such a, I mean, it just kind of seems like an obvious idea when you think about it it at one point but it's the poignancy can escape you i think you know but it's so nice that it's there
Yes. It has it's a really nice visual poetry in my opinion. They sneak in things in this movie a little more clever than they do in other movies as far as like um oh look what was invented during this period and look what exists today and you know look what's a relic now and i like in this movie how we have the frisbee pies yep that's really cool we get the guy with the barbed wire a little bit later yes <laughs> that's really awesome and in fact all those guys at the bar i think that's my favorite scene is when doc's telling him all about the future and he's like you know people run for fun and the one guy's just like <laughs> run for fun <laughs> he's like you gotta be out of your mind but that's great and then he, he even reenacts the uh like the wild gunman scene that's so cool Yes, a shout out to 7-Eleven. You know, where'd you learn to shoot that way, 7-Eleven? This, all this stuff is like really flowing. And then when like Biff comes in to disrupt it, I don't feel like we ever got a scene quite like this. Maybe this is sort of the equivalent of when Biff is trying to like mess with Lorraine in the parked car during the dance because he, Buford yeah. grabs Clara and starts dancing with her. Doc has to stand up to him. It, it's just, it's just strange seeing like these moments play out with other characters but recognizing it from the other movie and stuff yeah. uh, and, and still feeling like, like it fits. Like, I think that's what's so fun about it. Yeah, and I think that that's where the second part lacks. It doesn't have as many of these mirrored moments. I think the first and third are, are really nice bookends in that way in that the storylines are almost, like the, the major beats are almost exactly the same, but the characters have switched, the time period has, has, has switched. I think, And I think that could be part of the problem with the second film in this trilogy is that it just it doesn't it's not consistent in that way which makes it feel a little bit off you know it, it's my third favorite of these three i you know i, I love one three and, and two in that order and i think for that reason two just doesn't do it as well uh, so we're pretty much coming up on the great train robbery thing here before we do that we get I mean, like I mentioned earlier, my favorite scene, I think, is when Doc, well, not when he breaks up with Clara, but he has to go to Clara and explain, like, you know, I, I have to leave, and she wants an, a reason, and he says he's from the future, and it's, you know, he can't, you know, he just laid it all out on her. But I love when he goes to the bar that night, and he, like, asks for the whiskey, yep. and he starts, like, just riffing about the future. We don't really get to see much of it, but apparently he's been there all night telling them about the future. <laughs> Stone sober, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> just holding that drink. I mean, just sniffing it the whole night. But I mean, I I'm only I can only imagine the kind of shit that he told them about. Like, yeah, I mean, he tries to tell Clara about like going to the moon and stuff, but she calls him out. She's like, oh yeah, that was in a book. And he's like, oh yeah, like I almost. I almost blew my cover. Uh, but now that he's like totally out in the open and he's talking about, you know, who knows? I mean, we didn't have iPhones yet, but he could have been talking about like a computer or, or like a speedboat or, yeah. you know, scuba diver. <laughs> he only got as far as automobiles. <laughs> Oh, man. Then we have the uh, the showdown, which is great, and, and the moment of Marty's sort of growth here, his moment of change. When everyone in the bar is sort of like, you know, like you said earlier, if you don't go out there, you'll be branded a coward the rest of your life. And ultimately, he doesn't care. He says, that guy's an asshole. He's an asshole. <laughs> And that's enough for me. I was like, yeah, he is an asshole. That's like all you really need to say about 
about that, right? Right. And the only reason it doesn't get past that is because he takes Doc, uh, you know, captive. So now Marty's got to do something. But I imagine, like back in the old West, if you could, if you just you know had the modern peace of mind to be able to be like, you're just an asshole, man. Like <laughs> we could have avoided so many shootouts. Everyone would have been like, yeah, he is an asshole. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> shooting people dead in the street is a real dick thing to do. Hmm. <laughs> it took this teenager from the future, which which is also great how Buford's like, I'm going to shoot this 18-year-old kid dead in the street. <laughs> like, <laughs> Him and his Nikkei moccasins. But he does use the uh, stove top as the bulletproof vest, which is really yes. great, which, which plays so great, and then beats up Buford into the manure. Yes, a third manure joke. Yeah, but earned. I feel like they earned it because of all the sort of playing with at least my expectations. Like, it's sort of doing a Last Jedi thing in a weird way, if you take my meaning, where it's like presenting a scene from a previous film, but ending it on a completely different note. And this is sort of the only time Back to the Future 3 kind of replays it the way that it went down last time. So, like, Tannen always has to end up in manure pile one way or the other. Like, that's just their death. Destiny. <laughs> but all the other sort of incidences getting there can be sort of turned on their head in one way or another, whether it happens to Doc this time or Marty doesn't get away with it in the end or, or something like that. So before we get to the great train robbery, is there anything you know we haven't covered that you want to mention about uh, Back to the Future 3? Any, any little moments up until now or anything? As somebody who is fascinated with mixology, and and cocktails and things of that nature. I have been dying to make wake-up juice for most of my adult life. Um, I have seen people do it, and it's a little bit different every time. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, one of those things that I still need to check off my box. But and I wish I had a, had a chance to uh, or check off my list. I wish I had a chance to do it before this episode. But uh, I definitely want to do wake up juice at some point, and uh, I'll have to follow up and let you know how that goes. But I love that I love that moment of Doc doing the one shot and then immediately collapsing through a table. Which whoever that stunt man was, like good for that guy because that that looks like an old fashioned. Old Old West stunt where a guy really went through a table. Maybe that's not how they accomplished it, but that's how it looks, and it looks amazing. I feel like the stunts all around, like, when we get to this train sequence, like, it's... It's legit. Like, this is, like, we're back in a Western. Anytime someone jumps on a horse, like when we were rescuing Clara, chasing and jumping onto the train, I feel like all the stunts in this movie, you know, they must have been, you know, the classic stuntmen used for actual Westerns or something is how I feel, right? It's like, let's get the guys back on the horse. (laughs) I sincerely hope that they went back to, like, old school, like, old West stunt guy kind of techniques because a lot of the the stunt work in this does look really good. But I just... I always think about that fall through the table because like you see it happen you know like i don't know how they could have it can't be faked they can't shoot around that or cut it like he goes through the table and i'm always like oh god like who the hell fell through the table like that i mean the the train sequence looks incredible but that table for whatever reason always makes me like wince a little bit i always felt like when uh, marty gets shot like he kind of gets lifted off his feet and shoved back like a foot or two like i always thought that was a really great impact as well I agree on all that, but um, how do you how are you feeling about the climactic train sequence here? I mean, this is classic kind of cowboy stuff. It's great to see them with their bandit masks, and you know, is this a train robbery? It's a science experiment. 
one thing that I love about this train sequence and, you know, because so much of this movie mirrors that first movie, what I love is that just like in that first movie, this train has its own magical science element in those like logs that Doc invents to heat the engine to get it up the temperature up high enough to push that train to 90 miles an hour like we don't get into the science of that or you know what what the hell's different about these logs than normal logs it's just we, we just accept because one is green one is yellow one is red that you know they're going to explode at different times and they're going to make the engine hot and they're going to get that train as fast as it's got to go and i love that that's the magical element in this sequence the flux capacitor is is the original like magical science gadget never know how that works just has to work otherwise we don't have a movie if and if we don't have these magical you know exploding logs then we don't have marty going back to 1985 so i love that that's the analog is like this like weird old school combustive combustible log well i like that it sort of reminds you that doc is a scientist like he's invented other shit too right and yeah it's just like this totally drop line where it's like i created this to make the engine hotter and then i go well then why the hell can't you just like invent gasoline like just invent (laughs) just invent some gas like go you're i mean i'm sure there's some oil somewhere in hill valley like and then he's got all the parts to synthesize a refrigerator he can't make some kind of like oil into gasoline machine (laughs) again it doesn't hold up to under scrutiny but but like more than that i just love that their solution ends up being another one of these sort of unexplained magical inventions that gets them where they need to go. Yo, yeah. I mean, I was rewatching the first one and uh, there's the great moment where he's explaining, you know, what they're going to do where he's like, I, I hooked up this pole that goes directly into the flux capacitor. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. You know, like it's all these little things where it's just like, take my word for it. Don't worry. I'm a side like this. Like just because I screwed up on the helmet that reads minds, like doesn't mean my other shit doesn't work. I got it down. Don't worry. I invented this time machine eventually. I know what I'm doing. And then the second one, we don't really, it's not really a doc edition, but like, you know, the, I feel like the Mr. Fusion is like, oh, is like one of the sort of big deals that like helps them time travel in that right like they don't have to use plutonium anymore yeah so i just i love that there's there's some element of that in this movie this is my whole point but no i love this sequence i love it it's really tense like still even today like even when like because when i think it has to do with clara coming after him right like that's a great turn there's the idea that uh she hears those guys overhears those guys on the train talking about how doc was like all forlorn and she goes back to the blacksmith shop and sees the time machine model and is like holy shit like it's true and then goes after him and is all involved like they involved her like because that's what I meant earlier is like they don't have this with Elizabeth Shue in the second movie at all. Right. This is what they needed is for her to sort of not be in peril, but be involved. And here it's great how proactive she is. She jumps on the train. She blows the whistle. She climbs out to the side and everything like she gets almost all the way there. Right. And and even with, uh, again, just to break it down, without her, the stakes are still, if they don't succeed, then Marty's going over that cliff, or at least the car is, along with his hopes of getting back to 1985. You know, like, they have one shot at this, and we know that going into it. And then when 
then when Clara shows up, it's like, oh, shit, you know, like what? And then they, they, they reach the windmill, right? So now they're at the point of no return. And, and whatever happens, that car is going back to the future with or without all of them. And yeah, it's it's a brilliantly orchestrated sequence. And the tension is, I think, the highest of anything else in this trilogy in, in hindsight. I mean, you may watch, if you've never seen them, you know, that first movie that has that final sequence is, is pretty tense. But, you know, when you get to this point in the trilogy, man, this is way up there with that first movie climax. Yeah, I feel like for the first movie, that's great. Like that, that is very sort of like edge of your seat with Doc is, you know, everything's falling. The trees are falling on the power lines and he has to slide down and gets it just in time in that. But we're at the end of the third movie here. So like, I'm glad they're going as big as they're they can they're basically you know they're ending it with a huge locomotive crash over a cliff they're literally running it off running this movie off a cliff by the end here and i think it's great and there's sort of like a i feel like there's a bit of self-awareness about that but my favorite thing about it is just how like natural this all feels to the degree where um it's like oh shit clara showed up all right let's take her with us okay cool that's the plan and then he goes back for her and then it's like wait a minute we're not gonna make it like call an audible send me the hoverboard we're both gonna stay it's like okay Marty, and then you know and like then it becomes just marty going back and it's like yeah. sure he kept doc from being shot in the back but he didn't bring him back to the future so he didn't really succeed in his mission as it was laid out but yet he still succeeded because doc is happy and in love with clara and things have changed and everybody's different and so like it feels fresh in that way you know what i'm saying like i it's very i was very unexpected um to see it unfold like that yes and that's another area where I think part two falls short. We know now that there's three of them. So if you're aware of that, it, it, maybe it doesn't hit home as hard. But, you know, watching that second movie, I just didn't feel as tense, you know, because when, when shit hits the fan and the accident happens, Doc disappears. Marty's still in 1955 with Doc Brown, who just helped him get back to the future. So even though maybe realistically the chances of him being able to replicate that are slim, he's still in a place that we as an audience are familiar with. with he, He's with somebody he's familiar with. He's not alone by himself or dead. You know, like he's still in a relatively safe, comfortable spot, even if he is 30 years separated from his original time. Yeah, he still has like options, right? Like, yes, there's a way out. Like if he was sent back to 1885... What would he do? Yeah. Yeah, he's more screwed because not only is there no Doc, but Doc doesn't have the time machine anymore because he just sent one into the future and this one went with Marty into the past and now it doesn't work. So right. like that is totally, he's totally screwed then. But that is an interesting sort of thing about the second movie, which makes it stand on its own in a weird way is like, it's just like this connective tissue kind of movie where it definitely has like a first, second and third act, but it almost feels like three short films where it's like Marty's adventure in the future Marty's yeah. adventure in alternate 1985 Marty goes back to the first movie and screws around like behind the scenes and they and yep. they all have you know good and bad parts to them and they're, and they're enjoyable and this and that but they just for me like as a film they just don't sort of gel cohesively in a in a manner like the first and the third do. Yeah, it's very much to compare it to another trilogy. Part two is very much, in my opinion, the the search for Spock of this trilogy. In that it's enjoyable, you know. Like I, I, I when I watch Search for Spock, I don't hate it. I you know I enjoy spending time with those characters. But when you watch it as part of a trilogy, it really is mostly connective tissue to get you from Wrath of Khan to the Voyage Home. You know, so in that way, I think that Back to the Future Part Two is really just a weak film in that it was just kind of conceived to get us 
us to this third part. But, it, but to, you know, get, have have fun while doing it. But I don't think they hit the narrative beats to make it as compelling as they could have. Yeah, I think it became too much of like, um, like, what can we do with special effects? Right. Like Back to the Future 2 needs to push the boundaries of, you know, visual effects. We have Robert Zemeckis, who is like, you know, not only did the first Back to the Future, but like, come on, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of the greatest films of all time. I mean, if not technically, like, yes, logistically, like, a, you know, must have been a nightmare to shoot that film. Yeah. And Robert Zemeckis, you know, very much in the foreground of like a lot of those digital performance capture kind of things very early on with like Beowulf and, and always into special effects and pushing the boundaries. And I feel like there's times where that's more important for him than the story and stuff. And I think Back to the Future 2, he went a little overboard with what can we do with the visual effects. And in part three, he pulled it all the way back and showed that, no, I can tell a story and be like a classic filmmaker again. And like, here's some proof of that. That's how I kind of feel like this movie makes the second one better in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I was getting at earlier in that, you know, by making these movies back to back, I think that this movie does make that second movie better. There's a, there's a cohesiveness to these two. Yeah. Uh, so now we're totally back to the future. Marty is back in the greatest timeline, I guess we could say. <laughs> like, we could assume that this is the one that he's back, that they fixed things to the point where, you know, his dad's still a famous author and Biff is still running his auto business and things are mostly, you know, back to normal. He goes to pick up Jennifer and now we get, I totally forgot about this shit, but we get the infamous race with needles. Yeah. I totally forgot all about this, that like in part two, they dropped very low in the background. There was a line about how Marty got into an accident with a... With a Rolls-Royce. The Rolls-Royce accident, the infamous Marty and the Rolls-Royce incident. And here we're going to see it, like or what, what could have been. Like this is a nexus point in Marty McFly's timeline right here, you know? Like things yep. are about to go one way or the other. And I love it, man. I don't know, because again, like <laughs> it, it just shows his growth. It shows that he's going to stay that person that... That he's decided like to be a better person this is what it takes not to succumb to peer pressure so when when flea from red hot chili peppers very threateningly like challenges you to a drag race that you say no at least you crash your car and ruin your musical career forever it's such a weird moment because it feels like oh we forgot to do this a little bit yeah, yeah, yeah. but yet it also sort of like you know cements that this is the new marty like marty's on a different path now yeah and, and it sets up a future for him that we have never seen and won't see. You know, like, it's assumed that he will maybe live in, in Hilldale or, or somewhere nicer and he'll become a rock star, but, you know, we don't know. And as Doc says in the final moment that we see him, you know, your future isn't written. It's whatever you make it, you know? So, yeah, this sets up Marty's character arc to be something entirely imaginary. You know, we like, we, we can, we can picture it for ourselves, whatever we want his life to be. How do you feel about, so like Marty and Jennifer go back to the train station where the DeLorean was destroyed so that he could, you know, basically tell her everything that happened just to like, here's the proof. It actually happened. We went to the future. Um, all this kind of stuff went down. And then Doc shows back up. How, how are you feeling about, about the train here? Um, I got to admit, I'm a little, <laughs> I'm still at this point a little overwhelmed. I don't, it's not like I hate it. I just feel like it's a lot. So 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit silly and ham-fisted, right? Like, but I mean, it's in keeping with the tone of the trilogy by this point. Like, it doesn't feel out of place. I'll say that much. So it really doesn't bother me. But I will say that if I'm going to, like, seriously critique this script and the, the, the story structure that they've put together, I think that the train undercuts the stakes of the getting back to the future sequence. Because if Marty didn't get back to 1985 and he had bailed from the car, let's say that happens, there's still a way out for him. We, we don't realize it, but as eventually, and, and in not too short a time, because or not too long a time, because clearly Doc and, and Clara are not very different in age. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe four or five years because they got two kids now. So maybe it took a couple of years. Yeah, but Marty would have had a, a route back to 1985. So, I mean, if I'm going to really dig in and critique it, then yeah, it undercuts the tension of that. But if you don't know it's coming, then it doesn't. It's a, it's only a it's only a problem with repeat viewing. I like it as sort of like a farewell joke kind of thing. But narratively, it, it only bothers me a little bit um, because they could have sort of accomplished this in a much more graceful way. Instead of Doc like showing up, like Marty could have gone back to his house and there could have been like a package waiting for him, right? And it could have been the photo of like him and Doc and be like, oh, we're okay. Like he's okay. Like everything worked out and it would have been you know we wouldn't have had sort of the curtain call that we get with doc brown and clara and the kids sure. and everybody saying goodbye and all that but it could have still worked on sort of a more sentimental level yeah but this is certainly you gotta go out you know big i i just think like there's too much train <laughs> If it was just the front, like just the caboose, maybe, or if it was some kind of more steampunk, a newer type of contraption, right? Not a train, but like some kind of other thing. You know what I'm saying? Like something something completely new. And it flies. It's not just a train. It flies. So that means like it's been to the future already. Yes. Like it got its hover. Can you, my good man, how much to hover convert my train? Uh, <laughs> that's kind of, don't you think that's a little besides the point, sir? <laughs> I mean, again, I do think it is in keeping with the general. It doesn't. It doesn't feel out of place to me. But yeah, it is. They, they could have done a number of things to accomplish the same effect. So I don't think it's entirely necessary. But at, at the same time, knowing where this goes from here, you know, the, Back to the Future became an animated series for a little while. You know, so it is especially appropriate considering the fact that an animated series came after this. But yeah, if I were to if I were to rewrite that ending, I might have done it differently. Now, have you seen any of the animated series? I think. I think I might have caught like one or two episodes when it first aired on on TV, but I, I do know that it's mostly about the adventures of his sons, right? They're sort of they take the train through time or something. I would imagine. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, considering how I set myself up as like the world's biggest Back to the Future fan at the top of this show, that I have not seen the animated series, but I do own it. It is one of those things that I have been meaning to do, but I do have it. If you buy the trilogy on Blu-ray, it now comes as Back to the future the complete adventures it's not just the trilogy so you can buy a whole box set it's probably like going 20 or 25 bucks but um you get all three movies bonus discs and then you get the entire animated series which it only ran 26 episodes and then you get the you get the ride footage as well in there like it's actually a really cool set i've got that that's a lot of fun to watch yeah I remember for Keanu Club, Kara, Joey, and my 
myself, we watched the first season of Bill and Ted's cartoon uh-huh. um, because Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves actually provided the voices for Bill and Ted in the first season. But, uh, you know, just because you haven't seen the cartoon doesn't mean, make you any less of a fan of the series. You know, it's not like um, I'm going to take your badge away or, or, you know, your Dakota ring or anything like that. Looking at the artwork and the packaging, you think you're right. This is definitely Doc and Marty with Clara and Jules and Vern and Einstein. Now, before we say farewell, I just have to ask, have you played any of the Back to the Future video games? I have the original Nintendo game. I bought it, like, on principle because, like, I bought it just because, you know, it was cheap and it's a Back to the Future video game. But, I, you know, I've played it. It's absolute dog shit. <laughs> it's, it's pretty terrible. It is not a good game. I mean, it's not E.T. level bad, but it is very little to do with the movie. And it is very difficult. That's the thing. Like, you can beat it, but it is really hard. It's needlessly difficult. So I own it more just as a piece of memorabilia than anything else. It's just funny because this is the second episode in a row. Last episode, I did Karate Kid 3 with Brian Rodriguez, and there was a Karate Kid 2 video game. Of course. You know, it's just it's just a patent of the franchise once we get, like, into the 90s and Nintendo uh, sort of brings back the market that just, like, everything got a game again. Right. Well, I think that might bring us to the end of our journey. Is there anything you'd like to say before we're out of time? No, man. This this movie, uh, I enjoy it more now. Like, every more, the more I watch it, the more I really just get into it. And I, and I do understand your general qualms with the second part but you know I, I, I even then i still find that one to be a lot of fun despite everything and i think it really just comes down to the cast chemistry like i said at the top of the show it's just it's hard it, i can't deny how much joy i get just watching doc and marty spend time together you know as much as elizabeth shoe is doing what she can with the material i, I wish we had kept claudia wells but uh you know of course she had some uh family stuff going on and, and couldn't return to play jennifer for parts two and three i do like you said i do i wish that jennifer had been given more to do especially in this third part that would have been fun but no i think i think that back to the future three despite all odds you know when you tell people it's a western that 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 sounds stupid but it works so much better in practice than it does maybe in concept so i was really happy to revisit this again for the show you know i'm glad i'm glad to hear that you liked it so much as well oh yeah yeah i'm i'm a big fan as hard as i am on that second one you know it's not like i wish it never existed or anything like that like i'm just being hard on it you know and but but it does have like a lot of interesting stuff going on. I do think like it introduced me to the concept of alternate timeline realities, and now I'm a I love you know the idea of that. Like I I, I hope to God we live in a multiverse and somehow find some way to punch through that dimensional wall. And that's the other thing. Like th- despite the inherent cartooniness of this trilogy, you know it did instill that love of science fiction, especially time travel, in me at a young age. And to this day, when I think of science fiction, like genres anything to do with time travel is automatically kind of at the top of my list because i love timey you know bullshit oh i am right there with you like as as much as i'm a huge horror buff i, I think i've said before like science fiction has always been sort of my my most favorite genre yeah like sci- science fiction as a genre gets really philosophical and you know if you read a lot of ursula uh, Le Guin or you watch a lot of twilight zone you know it gets pretty heady and 
man, just I love the, how simple and fun these movies make science fiction as a genre. And I think, yeah, I think that time travel allows for a lot of really fun possibilities. But at the same time, you know, you have your heady time travel movies as well. Primer is a great example of that. This movie does a great job tonally of sort of getting across very complex ideas in a very basic manner for like the entire family to understand. And especially totally. like little six-year-old me sitting there when, when he's explaining how Einstein's clock is a minute faster because he skipped over it. I'm like, oh, right. my, my little mind can actually understand what's happening. <laughs> yes. And uh, before we get before we finish this up, I just wanted to, to point out that uh, I have been enjoying a beer called a Back to Reality India Pale Ale from Three Threes Brewing, which is in Hamilton, New Jersey. So if any uh, listeners are from South Jersey, have access to this, you can enjoy that while you watch Back to the Future Part 3. I got to meet Christopher Lloyd a couple years ago as well. Oh, how was that? My my aunt grew up in the 80s, right? She had posters of Michael J. Fox on her dorm room wall growing up. And when I went to college, she gifted me her uh, Back to the Future poster from when she studied abroad in France. So it's a French Back to the Future poster. And uh, it's not like a full size, like a big, but you know, it's, it's a moderate, modest size uh, poster. I got Christopher Lloyd to sign that. So, oh, cool. Uh, and I met Claudia Wells, uh, who played Jennifer, and, and she signed it as well. And I've been dying to meet Michael J. Fox and, and Leah Thompson. And uh, I know Leah Thompson's out there on the circuit because, um, you know, I, I follow her, or I did follow her on Twitter. She's always tweeting about, like, how she's signing Howard the Duck stuff and all kinds of stuff. So she's really into her fandom and her fans and things. So maybe yeah, if you I'm, sent her something, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting for them to come around. I know Michael J. Fox is going to be tough to get, but I would love to to get you know the rest of them um but yeah so that's what i'm working on currently well dan this has been a lot of fun tonight talking back to the future with you not just part three but uh, one and two as well i'm sorry that my you know that you had to wait so long for such a lackluster reveal should have just spit it out years ago when i had the chance but you know i look forward to having you back a couple times uh over the course of the year uh, that'd be great. We get a couple more episodes with you in before the end of the show. Yeah. Do we have any more uh, horror movies coming up? I'm not, I can't remember. Uh, we got to get to um, Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Oh, sure. We got to get to Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. Uh, you're more than welcome to join me and Brian for Day of the Dead. Got to talk about that. So I mean, you know, there's a couple. I mean, there's also we could sneak in a Phantasm Three and you know maybe a Hellraiser Three. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff yet to talk about. It's gonna be uh it, it might be the last year of this show, but it's gonna be pretty packed with lots of episodes yeah please 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 keep me abreast of those developments and, and let me know because for some reason i got i love talking part threes i didn't expect to have so much fun with that but i've really come to enjoy uh being a guest on the show so yeah definitely keep me, uh, keep me awesome absolutely well until next time
That's going to do it for another episode of Third Time's a Charm. I gotta thank Dan, who's definitely going to return again before the show is over, back in his horror consultant role. I mean, we got a couple more horror movies I'd love to get in there before the end of this year. So Dan, we're definitely going to hear from you again soon. Go to cageclub.me to check out all of the shows on the network, even the ones that I'm not on, and then check out the other shows that I am on, like Cage Club, Keanu Club, Watch the Throne, Cinemakers, and check out the show currently in progress, Tom Tom Club. Tom Tom Club is every other Friday, Joey Lewandowski and myself are alternating the films of Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. So, we have Hanks for the Memories and Cruise Club every other Friday, alternating between the two guys, the two Toms, the Tom Toms. It's the Tom Tom Club, y'all. That's Friday. Fridays are for fun. Don't ever forget that. And speaking of Fridays being for fun, Fridays are for fun. Go over to my sometimes unofficial co-hosts show over there on High School Slumber Party because it's March Madness this month and you just might hear a familiar voice talk about a familiar actor. I'm going to be on the Teen Wolf episode. I mean, he just talked about Michael J. Fox of Back to the Future, but now the fox is a wolf. And we're going to be over there doing some layups, slamming some dunks, taking some free throws, all that kind of stuff. And then later in that month, I'm on another basketball-related episode that also has to do with high school. I mean, that's the place to go to do that, right? High School Slumber Party. Check it out. Cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Write to me at 3 at cageclub.me. Uh, I've only ever had one letter written in, which was great. So, like, uh, you know, maybe before the end of this show is over, we could get two. It would be great to have three. I mean, I only want three. If I get four, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to digitally burn it before it reaches my eyes. Get this show everywhere on the internet that has podcasts. If you can't find it, write to Al Gore. He'll set you straight. He invented the internet, so he'll know where to find it. Anyway, you know, until next time... That's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three may stop at me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?